Hey everybody, welcome to Brain Over Belly. I am David Brown from Everest Surgical Institute and Idaho BMI. This podcast is all about solving the puzzle of obesity and the other diseases that are overwhelming our society and shortening our lives. It is high time for a new approach and better understanding of what is really going on. What we are witnessing isn't normal. I want to pivot in a new direction. Let's get started now by putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Thank you for joining us. For those of you who have been listening from the beginning, you've probably noticed this episode sounds a little different. It marks a new chapter for the show that I'm really excited to share with you. New music and introduction to kick us off. I'm recording from a new studio located in my offices at Everest Surgical Institute and Idaho BMI, which is going to give me the opportunity to share more new episodes with you more frequently. And while we all enjoyed my chats with Rick Dunn, thank you, Rick, I'm equally excited to introduce you to my new co-host, Hannah Brown. Hannah has been with Idaho BMI for just about four years now. She started out as a medical assistant. Our patients know and love Hannah. Uh, She's also worked on the insurance side of this practice. Uh, She has done support groups. She has seen it all. Now she does surgery scheduling. It's a treat for me to have Hannah here. Among other reasons, she's my daughter. Today, we're going to do a deeper dive on a number of important topics we've touched on before. Now, just so you know, this episode is a little longer, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to do the podcast in a new format, is to dive a little deeper in some of these topics. So here we go. Thank you for joining us. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, this is going to be great. So uh, the topic today, you know, I think we've done 20 podcasts leading up to this point. And uh, we've covered a lot of different topics, and we sort of want to do a deep dive on some of them and cover them maybe a little more deeply or thoroughly. Okay, so I know a lot of people ask about metabolism and how we kind of have control over this, and then as they age, how metabolism can go down. Can you kind of address this or share your thoughts? Yeah, it's pretty common, actually, for people's metabolic rate to decrease as they get older, uh, it's a very common question and comment. Hey, look, I just feel like my metabolism is really low. How do I increase it? Um, I sort of want to address this whole topic from a different angle. I think we've all really thought about metabolism as how robustly, how much our bodies burn the energy, the food that we eat, you know, and the idea that metabolism is sort of, hey, how much energy do you burn? And that's really important. And I would say just about all of the research into metabolism, maybe that's an overstatement. A lot of the research has focused on this idea that what is the rate at which a person burns energy? Or, you know, what can you do to increase that? Or the whole idea. And I want to sort of take it from a different angle and that is you know the traditional idea is that food is fuel we hear that and it sounds oh that's that's a cool idea and i think typically we think of it okay food is fuel we shouldn't be using it as therapy or to calm ourselves that type of thing but there's another angle of it and that is we think of 
okay, we need to eat food so that we have energy to go about our day and so I can go exercise and I can think and I can talk to people, all the stuff we need to be eating to provide that energy. And really, I would suggest that human beings are built to use as their primary energy the energy that we've all stored. I got some fat. We all have some fat. We have some glycogen. Our bodies work the best when we're burning that stored energy for the fuel that we need to go about our days. And rather, we eat, the reason we eat is to replenish those stored fuels. Okay. So when it comes to breakfast, I'm just going to mention this because I know I, I mean, school, public school starting in like kindergarten, they tell you, you know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. You have to have breakfast. That's right. You know, that's your fuel for to carry out the rest of the day. So what are your thoughts? I mean, I think everybody has been taught yeah. that at one point or another. Yeah. All of us have heard that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. A lot of dietitians and even within medicine, the recommendation is to eat four to six small meals throughout the day. We've heard it. And that's really the way we've been taught and trained. Um, I really think that the, the, the body is built to function in a very different way. In fact, it's more healthy if we're doing this, this burning of fuel that we have stored. That's what we need to access for fuel. Um, Am I answering your question? Yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. So you're saying that instead of um, basing it off your fuel, like, okay, this is what I'm putting in my body in the morning, it comes from the storage, the fat that you already have. Yeah. Now, of course, everybody has different amounts of stored fat. Right. I think you've been blessed with a certain metabolism that you don't have a lot of reserve. And so because of your genetics and whatever, the environment, um, yeah, you don't have the reserves, and so you know the amount you have stored is more closely related to the amount that you're consuming. And so that's, but there's flow in the system. And if we think back up and think about the economy, there are a lot of ways to look at healthy economy versus an economy that isn't healthy. Uh, and I know that's a big topic right now. A lot of people are struggling and inflation and there are a lot of things you can look at to judge whether an economy is good. One of the things you can look at is the flow of money. Mm. Um, and that is really the ro most robust economy is one in which there's a lot of different people, a lot of different businesses, organization that are both spending and receiving money. And that's, you know, it's a very generic definition, but that is the flow of money. You get into real problems when that slows down and even stops in an economy. So you look at the, the real estate market right now. The number of home sales has dropped very dramatically for several different reasons, but that's, that's not a good thing when you look at what is a desirable economy. So it's, it's the basic idea of you want money to flow in an economy. And it's the same thing with fuel in our bodies. Um, we want to be accessing fuel that we've stored. And that's the best way for energy, fuel, calories to be flowing. That's the, mo that's the healthiest way. 
Trying to remember what you had asked originally. Yeah. Um, as far as breakfast, and you were saying that instead of basing your entire day or energy off of what you're putting in in the morning, it's based on the storage that you've already created or the good fats that you already have in your body. Right. So if you look at your average person, in other words, body mass index, a lot of people are familiar with BMI. It's not a perfect number or measurement, but the higher the BMI, the more overweight a person is. Um, so the average person, say, with a body mass index of 22, you'd look at that person and they'd look like a healthy, pretty lean person. On average, people with that BMI have in storage about 200 to 400,000 calories stored up. Really? Yes. And so we have a lot of reserves. I do. Uh, so I think that the system is built for a lot of flexibility. Again, the less someone has stored, the more dependent they are on to eat, yeah, you know, eating, eating breakfast. Um, but I would say with the obesity rates being what they are today, that we definitely are in a place as Americans where we have a lot of stored energy. And so I think it's worth backing up and looking at the physiology, the way we're supposed to function and the problem that we have today. So say someone has plenty of reserves. I think I have plenty of reserves. I think I'm healthy, but I, my BMI is about 24. I could very reasonably go three and four and five days without eating anything, and I would not suffer uh, from a physiological standpoint. If anything, it's actually, it would improve my health. Can you explain that? Like, what, how does that happen? Because I think, I think my immediate thought is, oh my gosh, you're going you're gonna to be starving and you're going to lose all this weight and you're going to, you know, your metabolism is going to go down because, right. and then when you eat again, it's, it's going to take a long time to process again. And so can you explain? Yeah, that's, and that's the traditional thinking is that, you know, if you don't eat consistently, your body will go into quote unquote starvation mode. And I have big problems with that. I think it, the reality is that our bodies are designed very differently than that type of thinking is suggesting. So, um, all right, I've compared it before to a bank account. You think about someone like Elon Musk, you know, mm -hmm. supposedly worth a couple hundred billion dollars. Of course, it's all into entities, into businesses and creating and all that. Right. But say you've got a big bank account, a savings account, and you can make deposits. You drop by every week or every day and you make a deposit. Well, it's the same thing with our bodies. We're storing fat instead of money. Well, imagine the scenario where you have this big bank account, but you can no longer make withdrawals. You can deposit, but you just can't get money out of the bank. Problem? Potentially. Yes. I mean, if, yeah. <laughs> if to pay your rent or mortgage or to go buy groceries or to pay your, your car payment, if you can't access the money that you've worked for and saved, yeah, you're going to have problems yeah. very quickly. It's really what's happening in modern America as far as our metabolism. We are losing the ability to tap into the energy that we've stored, the fat, the glycogen. So, so the human body is very elegant in this regard, and there's a lot of 
systems in the body to help us access that fuel and to burn it, get it to where it's needed in the body. Um, the problem is that it's, you know, it's a classic idea. Use it or lose it. We're not using it. In other words, we are not using the pathway to access fuel. And so to some degree, those systems in the body are down-regulated and we, we lose them. So if we go a day without eating, we feel it and we feel miserable. We're behind the ball. Right. So if we don't push these systems to work regularly, we lose them and we can only make deposits and we gain more weight and we have less and less flexibility as far as metabolism. Yeah. So, okay. You mentioned going up to like four or five days, um, which sounds, I guess, from my perspective, I feel like that sounds so extreme, like <laughs> brutal almost. Right, right. So, you know, you said one day your, your body's going to feel starving and it's going to feel terrible, but what about four or five days? Is there a change over time where, you know, it's not as uh, brutal or terrible? Like, does it get easier or how do you navigate yes. that? So it used to be, uh, if I was, you know, I had an operating day, had a bunch of cases in the operating room. If I didn't eat breakfast, I felt it and I felt terrible and it was grumpy and mad. Yeah. <laughs> now, because of many years, I've, you know, tried to live a different way. Now, if I eat before noon or so, I feel sort of sick. My body's not used to that. Um, and why is that? I mean, how how does your body change to almost like reject food before a certain time? What, what is a super that? good question. So a lot of people are familiar with the circadian rhythm. You know, light in the day, it's dark at night. Your body, re there's so much of us that is built around that system. And it's the same type of thing. We have programs in our body for eating schedule. Hmm. And so... You know, one of the things about sleep, sleep is so important. You want it to be very consistent, though. You want to go to bed roughly the same time. You know, very, very important. Um, if you don't do that, then it causes problems. Well, it's the same thing with eating to some degree. So I just, I just haven't eaten before noon for many years. And so my body adjusts and it sort of gets programmed in. And they're actually timekeepers in the body. You know, liver and pancreas, there's great studies that show that these are sort of the centers of that timekeeping. They're all sort of synchronized to the circadian rhythm, the sun, but in part they're in the liver and the pancreas. So if I bounce outside of that, my body's just not really ready for it and it causes problems. You know, I feel sick. That's super interesting. So right. when, you know, the times that you have eaten earlier or, you know, before noon, and your body feels sick, it's because, is it more of like a, a mental thing or is your stomach physically, just explain that more. Like what is it that causes that exact, I well, get the, the programming, but. Without going into too much yeah. detail. So I usually eat for the first time in the day about 1230 and I eat eggs. Right. I eat eggs. I have for years, <laughs> eggs and cheese and people freak out with how much, how many eggs I eat. Well, if, if the day is different and say I eat at 11, I spend time in the bathroom. Okay. Grumbly, <laughs> upset stomach. I, it feels like a GI bug. Why exactly? I don't know. But it's the research does show that 
this cycling, this eating schedule is a very uh, programmable thing. And so we can use that to our advantage. So to your question about how does the body adapt, there's a, it's complicated, it's fascinating, and very impressive. So you've seen the show alone. I haven't. Actually, you I, haven't? I've seen the preview. I get that it's kind of wilderness yeah. type outdoorsy. Very popular. I, I watched the first couple of seasons in the last six months. Fascinating. Very interesting to me. And it was frustrating too. How so? Because this idea that we're talking about, this metabolic flexibility, um, the lack of it was in the forefront. In other words, it was demonstrated. The problems with eating three meals a day were demonstrated pretty quickly on the show alone. So the show is, yeah, they. I think each season they start out with 10 people. And typically these are people with a lot of experience with wilderness survival or mm. law enforcement, military, you know. And so they take them out to a place like Vancouver Island, off, you know, off, outside of Seattle, off the coast there. And it's uh, it's a contest to see who can survive the longest. They can choose, I think, 10 tools or implements to use on their way, a knife or whatever. And you just got to survive. And it's interesting that within a day or two, I mean, the first thing almost all of these people are worried about is food. Very understandable. But I get frustrated by that. <laughs> Because they got grizzly bears, huge grizzly bears on the island. They got freezing rain. It is it is not a pleasant place. And the truth is human beings have this flexibility to go without eating and maybe prioritize something more highly, like building a structure that's going to keep grizzly bears from killing you. So that's the first thing you would do. You think shelter is the most important? 100%. So, But on this show, the contestants are freaking out pretty early like crap i need food and so they're <laughs> scrambling in a desperate way to get food and to me you know i'm armchair quarterbacking here i'm you know i probably would be tapping out 10 hours in but from a metabolic perspective these folks could go five days six days seven days as long as they have water to drink and stay hydrated they're totally fine from an energy or a a fuel standpoint. And so if a person went into that show and they had gone through the process of adaptation in their body, they're way ahead. They can focus on building a log cabin and securing fresh, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it demonstrates this idea that it takes practice. It's just implementing simple principles that expand our body's ability to function that way. So what would you recommend somebody that's, you know, maybe the jump to, okay, I'm used, me example, I'm used to eating, you know, I'm a first thing in the morning. I'm kind of still in that place where it kind of carries my morning. So what would you recommend somebody like me who maybe eats at seven, seven thirty? maybe the jump to noon is a little extreme for me sure. starting out. What do you recommend? Well, again, I don't know what your BMI is, but you are thin <laughs> and you're, you're healthy that way as far as weight. So, you're probably not the typical person. Okay, but maybe just generalize. Maybe somebody okay. who so, wants to start implementing this. What would you recommend? Okay, so 44% of Americans, adult Americans, are obese. Obesity is having a body mass index of at least 30. So, yeah, average person, say, whose BMI is 
28. Okay. 29. So where would they start? I think skipping breakfast is a good place to start. Um, you know, it's just, it's so popular now, this idea of intermittent fasting. Yeah. Time-restricted eating, same concept. In other words, just in a regular, regular schedule, do some fasting. Go without food. I think it makes sense. At least that's what I did, and a lot of people seem to do. They skip breakfast. They go to lunch. So that gives them a window. Say they ate dinner at 5 or 6 or 7 the night before. Say they ate it, started eating at noon, first time of the day. Well, that gives them you know, 17, 18 hours of having fasted. So that's a good, I think, a start. Or if that's really difficult, go to 10 o'clock or 11, like you were saying. Yeah. I just had a thought, too. I've noticed, kind of going along with what you said about what time you're eating dinner, I've noticed the later I eat, or if I have dinner and then I'm like, oh, okay, I kind of want a snack, or I, and I kind of eat more later in the evening, maybe 9, 10 o'clock, I notice in the morning, I almost, and I don't know if everybody's this way, maybe this is normal, maybe it isn't, but I notice earlier in the morning, like the second I wake up, I have hunger pains. Like I'm so hungry, which is so ironic because I feel like I just ate all this food just hours ago. Why am I so hungry? So Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think I, I know a detailed response to it, but the later we eat in the evening, one, it affects sleep certain stages of sleep. So it's not generally recommended. Yeah. Um, but I think it does make sense that there's a connection eating late in the evening with feeling hungry in the morning. Now I will say this, that the perception of thirst, is a lot like the perception of hunger. In other words, feeling thirsty is very difficult to distinguish from feeling hungry. And I think the default for a lot of us is we get that sensation and we think we're hungry and in reality, we're actually thirsty. So something I tell my patients is after surgery, again, bariatric surgery, this is one of the main services that we provide for people. After surgery, I tell people that every day, the rest of their lives, getting in enough liquid, uh, sugar-free liquid, water, broth, is far more important for them than any food. And so it... For most of them, it's a discovery that, oh my gosh, yeah, I wake up and I feel really hungry and I'm used to eating, but if I hydrate, I don't feel hungry and I feel great. And is that kind of a slow process or is that like right after surgery, I'm uh, just focusing on liquids and I'm not waking up with that hunger pain? Well, it's it's interesting. So I, I see our patients two weeks out from their operation and I'm catching them right in this change a very dramatic change and i will very often ask them hey are you are you feeling hungry and a lot of them will their immediate response is yeah i'm hungry a lot and they'll stop themselves and say actually i'm not but my head is telling me yeah my head is telling me to eat so it's a there's a lot of things changing i think as far as physiological true hunger i don't think they're feeling that but they're used to eating in the morning, and so their brain is pointing them sort of towards food. And they're just discovering this, that, you know what, there's a conflict here. I'm not really hungry, but I feel like I'm supposed to be eating. Right. Just because it's programmed, you know, right. for life. That's what you do. Right. So, again, it depends on where a person is starting from. You, I don't think you need to fast necessarily. Um, 
But I think some type of fasting is really good for us. Pretty consistently and frequently, but also extended or prolonged fasts. So every quarter I will fast for two or three days. I'll do one fast where I go longer. Um, just did it this weekend. So what do you, can you kind of walk me through what that feels like for you? You know, you yeah. said your BMI is what, 24? Can you kind of walk me through like, okay, first day, this is what I'm feeling as opposed to like, you know, yep. the last day, what that's like? So the first day feels like any other because I, I ate dinner the night before, six right. o'clock or whatever. I wake up, I hydrate a lot. I go and I work out at the gym, primarily resistance training, weightlifting. And there are many days where I will not eat until two or three in the afternoon. So the day doesn't feel any different. Right. Uh, but dinner comes around and I'm hungry. But because I've been doing this, my energy level hasn't changed. Not at all. Wow. Uh, mental clarity, I feel mentally very clear, thought process, energy level. It's, it's, it's all the same. Actually, it improves my mental clarity. And a lot of people will tell you this who do this consistently. They feel more clear. They're sort of a heightened lucidity. Wow. Sounds like an album yeah. <laughs> name or something. Um, that sense of hunger becomes less prominent or a little bit detached. It's there for the full three days, but it's it, it's like wearing a watch. You know, I have this watch. I know it's there, um, and I feel it. If I think about it, yeah, it's there. And it's the same type of thing with the sensation of hunger when I fast. It's like, oh yeah, it's there, but it's just a thing. It's it doesn't keep me from functioning. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So. Again, if someone's starting cold in this, yeah, it's going to be very different. They're going to be a rage monster and have a rough crash. couple of days. But it's to some degree, it's very common. People talk about in the afternoon, they sort of crash, become quote unquote hypoglycemic. They launch, but it's the same idea that the energy just sort of falls. You know, if someone didn't eat lunch, they sort of crash. So, yeah, same idea. That makes sense. I feel like that happens to me at least with work too. I, I'm trying to change what I'm eating and um, put better food in, but I've noticed in the past when, you know, you start crashing, okay, it's lunchtime, my body's programmed, I need to eat right now. And then I do, or I put in food that maybe isn't the best or sugar or carb, whatever. And I feel really great for, I have like a strong 45 minutes where I'm just like, wow, I'm just cranking this out and and then it, it hits me like two o'clock where I'm like, okay, I cannot function. And I feel like I haven't slept in three weeks. And, yep. and then you have, you feel like you have to do it again though. You have to keep putting more junk in. Well, one of my goals, personal goals is metabolic flexibility. In other words, if I eat lunch or if I don't eat lunch, my day is not that different. And a lot of times up front, people worry that, man, living like this, it's so restrictive. It's, it's just awful. And I had a patient many, well, a couple of years ago who traveled a lot for his work. And he initially was very worried about it. Like, look, I'm in airports and airplanes and how am I going to manage this? And I remember that. Yeah. I remember, you remember him. Yeah. And about nine months after surgery, he came back and he's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. It's like, I, as long as I have, you know, a container with water or something to drink in it, 
I'm good. I can go a day or whatever. It doesn't matter where I am. I can function and I don't feel poorly. And when I have the chance, yeah, I'll get a, some meat and some vegetables or something. So it's the opposite. Yeah. Would you say a lot of it is mindset or do you think, like, do you think it's maybe more mental instead of being so hyper-focused on, oh, I can't have this or this is more of like the loss mentality of like, I'm not able to have these things or do you, do you think it's deeper than that? I think it's both. Both. In other words, um, this whole process of adaptation, it affects our liver pretty dramatically, our fat cells, the pancreas, brain. In other words, there's a lot of physiological changes that have to happen. And that sort of, all that has to happen to free up the brain and the mind to be open to a different way of functioning. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think it's just incrementalism, little small steps and discovering, wait a minute, I can do this. I actually feel good. So kind of playing devil's advocate here. What do you think as far as patients who are really struggling after surgery with, I'm still feeling hungry. I'm still feeling, um, they're, they're just struggling a little bit more versus, you know, the patient that you just mentioned that was like, this was so easy. I thought this was going to be so hard. Like, what do you think it is? I, where's the disconnect or I know it's great question. One thing. Yeah. But. It doesn't happen very often. Um, and maybe it is tied to what you're, talking about the the mental part of it the psychological part of it that there's just this deep belief that i can't be doing well if i'm not eating and i don't mean that in a condescending way it's just um i think maybe that's a part of it Mm -hmm. but i can't rule out the fact that man someone just feels really hungry yeah (laughs) i don't know i don't have a great answer for it but um hunger it's a very complicated thing it is primarily governed in the brain. So most often someone comes in and says, I'm hungry a lot. Get, we have to primarily address thirst and hydration. So 70% of people in America are chronically dehydrated. Wow. Yeah, it's very common. And uh, that chronic dehydration does a lot of things. None of them are good. But one of those things that come from being dehydrated is feeling hungry. So that's the first thing we deal with. We ask about sleep. So uh, that's not a very good answer. I mean, I I get it though. I know that there's so many factors that go into it that it's hard to pinpoint like, oh, it's just this one. But yeah, yeah, I think with the mental, but then also, you know, sleep and then are you getting the liquids? Yeah. And everybody is a little bit different and it's, it sound, maybe it sounds like I'm telling you, you're wrong. You're not really hungry. And that's, it's very stupid of me maybe to say. <laughs> um, but again, what we're talking about is the optimal performance of the human body. It's, it has far more capacity than has been recognized traditionally. In other words, we are, we are built to be lean, mean fighting machines uh, but it's all about exposure, uh, exposing ourselves to these conditions where we don't eat. If we don't put ourselves through that, we we lose the capacity to function in that way. So I know with a lot of our patients, we hear the term ketosis a lot. So can you kind of explain to me or break it down in a simple way how that relates to metabolism and this entire process and program? Can you hear my stomach rumbling? 
<laughs> no. Can okay, you hear me? No. So, yeah, great question. And I, I often hesitate to talk about it by name. In other words, ketogenic diet or ketosis, because my fear is that people will sort of segue this conversation that, hey, ketosis is good into the idea that I need to jump into the process of buying things with the keto label. Right. Um, no. But ketosis, so we have different sources of fuel or types of fuel. Fat, okay? We store fat for a reason. I would argue it really should be our primary type of fuel. Turns out it's a much cleaner fuel than the main alternative, which is sugar. So, you know, the old battle, carbs or fat. Um, if our body is burning fat as its primary fuel, some of that fat that is being burned is being converted into what are called ketones. You know, Beta-hydroxybutyrate is the one found in human beings at the highest levels when we're in ketosis. But there are others, acetoacetone or just acetone. These are... These are molecules that are typically generated when we are burning fat as fuel. Those molecules are generated in the liver. So in other words, let's walk through this stepwise. Say, like right now, I haven't eaten since last night. Uh, what is it? It's almost 1 o'clock. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, because I haven't eaten, some of the fat that I have stored... It's getting the signal we have low insulin because I haven't eaten um, low insulin and several other things that are signaling to my body. Okay, you, you need fuel. You haven't eaten. So my fat cells, the adipocytes, they're starting to release fat in the form of triglycerides. A lot of people are familiar with triglycerides. People get a cholesterol panel. That's one of the things that's measured is fat in the blood or triglycerides. So anyway... There's also fatty acids, free fatty acids. A triglyceride is a molecule that has three fatty acids attached to a glycerol backbone. So when I'm fasting, when a person is fasting, the fat cells in the body start releasing this stored energy in the form of fat. Some of that fat goes to the liver. The liver takes that fat up. And it breaks it down. Well, it can repackage it into triglycerides that it sends out to tissues of the body so it has fuel available. Some of it, it will process into these ketones. So, um, you know, people check their blood for ketones or their urine. Right. It just is evidence that, okay, your liver is converting some of the fat into these ketones. So that's ketosis is when you got ketones in your blood probably worthwhile distinguishing that from diabetic ketoacidosis, which is a life-threatening problem, and a lot of people get them confused, even in the medical community. So it's a classic condition medical students learn about in medical school. The person comes into the ER, their blood glucose is very high, they're acidotic, you know, they're acidic conditions in their blood, and they're very, very sick. Um. It's a, you know, the common word there is keto, ketoacidosis. The bottom line is that the, the level of ketones in the blood in that scenario is roughly tenfold higher 
it's a lot higher than in, say, nutritional ketosis. People are fasting, totally different conditions. It's just the common thing is the presence of ketones in the blood. Um, and in diabetic ketoacidosis, it's a fundamentally different set of conditions. So if a person is fasting regularly and they're eating low carb, uh, they're bouncing in and out of ketosis, no, it's a totally different thing. And it's not dangerous like the diabetic ketoacidosis. Anyway, so back to... The ketosis and how it relates to metabolism. Okay. So basically, it's 1 o'clock today almost, and my body is getting the signal that I don't have fuel coming in to my mouth. So my fat cells are releasing fat, and it's distributed uh, throughout the body. So I have energy to burn. Well, if someone really has never fasted, they haven't eaten low carb and they just haven't lived this way and they don't eat for 24 hours, that's sort of a stunning set of circumstances to the body. And so they're going to feel crappy and they're going to have low energy. They're going to have headaches. They're just, it's as if they don't have any fuel. Right. And is it safe? I feel like sometimes we hear that from patients, you know, with our liquid diet, you know, before surgery. Is it even safe for my body to, you know, I'm used to eating. Maybe they are doing the low carb, but to go into two weeks of just liquids, you know, I think we get that question a lot. Like, is this yeah. even healthy or safe for my body? So for the average person, yeah, it is safe. Um as long as we're hydrating, we're getting vitamins and electrolytes. And a person first does this, um, they get their body gets rid of a lot of water. Along with the water, they get rid of electrolytes. And so this is a major cause of headaches and feeling lousy and feeling flu-like symptoms. Back 10 years ago when I first started doing this, I had a month, if not longer, where I felt like I had some degree of the flu. Looking back, I, I think, oh man, I would have done that much differently. I I wasn't supplementing with electrolytes. Okay. So it is safe. That being said, if someone has diabetes and they're especially if they're on insulin, they have have other medical conditions, metabolic syndrome, high blood pressure. Uh, yeah, you need someone watching over your shoulder because um, the body it will adapt pretty quickly. It's just you need some nurturing. Okay, so you mentioned how people, you know, nowadays in America, you know, we're losing the ability to um, maintain fat or to, you know, go use our storage or... Yeah, well, we, we have very little problem maintaining fat. It's accessing it. Fair. Um, yeah, yeah, it's very common. So insulin resistance is a good example of one of the results of losing the ability to access fat. So as we downregulate these systems in the body that are required for accessing fuel, uh, one, we get increased inflammation. And that's really largely the result of, say, we, we stop burning fat. We store it, but we're not really accessing it or burning it. What that means is there's a shift to burning a different fuel, which is sugar, essentially. And it's not good. And one of the things that happens when our bodies shift to really burning just sugar as fuel is we have more oxidative stress. In the cells, and the mitochondria, we have 
uh, more oxidation damage to the cholesterol or LDL in our blood. We just, inflammation goes up and we develop insulin resistance, which means that the insulin generated by the pancreas in the body, the cells aren't responding appropriately to the insulin. One of the main things insulin signals to the body is that, hey, there's sugar in the blood. Take it up into the cell and use it or store it. And if, if it's just a consistent, we're always eating or consistently eating, um, the body can lose the ability to respond to the insulin. And insulin resistance and inflammation are so intertwined. It's, you can't, so you can't have one without the other. So that's sort of a, you can think of it as clogging the system. Okay. Insulin's not working well and uh, inflammation is going up. And so you can look at the chronic diseases that are killing us pretty much, whether it's heart disease, Alzheimer's, cancer, diabetes. These diseases really are primarily driven by this fundamental problem, this problem that is resulting from us not using frequently our body's capacity to pull fuel from storage and burn it. Is that making okay. sense? Yeah, no, it makes sense. So not only does a person just continue to gain weight, but inflammation goes up, insulin resistance increases, and they start getting high blood pressure. They have joint pain. They don't sleep as well. Mental fogginess. All these things continue, and unless there's a break and a change in direction, they just build. And what we do in modern medicine is basically treat some of the symptoms or manifestations with medications without really addressing the fundamental problem. And sometimes those medications can make problems worse too. Yeah. So you take insulin, for example. So diabetics, um, you know, usually when, a, when the diagnosis of diabetes is made, usually we're probably 10 years behind the ball. In other words, this problem has been going for 10 years uh, before we make the diagnosis of diabetes. Usually people are started on an oral medication to lower blood sugar. And then at some point, usually five years after that initial diagnosis, insulin will be started. People will give them injections of insulin. So with diabetes therapy, a lot of times we're chasing our tails. In other words, because we're trying to treat blood glucose, blood sugars that are high, we're giving medications that lower the blood glucose, but in order to avoid the hypoglycemia, the really low blood sugars, and that can be life-threatening, we tell people, or at least traditionally we've told people, diabetics who are on these medications, hey, you have to be eating three meals a day. Right. Orange juice. Or, right. Yeah. Hey, and it used to be that my patients would be told you got to eat 60 grams of carbohydrates at every meal in order to avoid the low blood glucose. Right. So that's an instance where the fundamental problem has gone completely untreated and we're actually making it worse, but we feel good because we're keeping the blood sugar down or at least in what we consider a healthy range. So the answer, metabolic flexibility. It's, it's fasting regularly. And yes, we advocate the low-carb 
lifestyle for a lot of reasons. I think that's for most people, vast majority of people, that's the best doorway into this metabolic flexibility. What about with the fasting? I mean, would you recommend the four to five day fasting with your diabetic patients? Is that something that they could do? Would that be sustainable for them? So before surgery, our patients uh, do liquids, clear liquids, sugar-free clear liquids for two weeks. Quite an adjustment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but in our diabetics, even like those who are on insulin up to this point, not an insignificant number of them will need to stop their insulin within that two-week period before surgery, which should signal something very significant, is that, look, two weeks of, of doing this, liquids, we need to stop your insulin. I don't know any you know any physician who would say that's a bad thing. It's a very good thing. But it, to me, it, it demonstrates, look, we have to approach this a very different way. Two weeks of fasting results in people getting off of medications in many instances. So they need someone looking over their shoulder and walking them through it. But yes, I would say this is the best thing for diabetes. And we see insulin resistance and diabetes reversed very quickly. The body is very responsive for both blood pressure issues, insulin resistance, inflammation. These things are reversed quite quickly in most people. It's such a cool, I don't know, concept to think that we have, you know, obviously we can have these diseases and these things can happen, but also too that we have the power to reverse them just with certain little, it's not little, you know, they're big changes, but just the willingness to do it. Yep. And I don't know, I think it's so cool. Simple. I think Leonardo da Vinci was the one who said simplicity is the highest form or the greatest form of sophistication it's really true with this whole thing with the human body simple so yeah we should be fasting drinking lots of water so what would you tell somebody who you know we've all been programmed that we have to have these three meals a day and breakfast is the most important thing that's how you're going to get your energy for the day um somebody who really wants to take control of their metabolism What's the main principle you would tell someone to focus on? Or what's the big takeaway you would say? Well, first, just that idea that an individual taking control of their metabolism. Right. Very important. Um, in other words, to be curious, to ask questions, and to experiment. Again, I think the fundamental idea is that we have to shift our mindset or the way we frame food from this thing that we have to consume so that we have energy throughout the day and really recognize a more elegant and bigger picture that we store fat, we store fuel for a reason. In other words, that reason is so that we have fuel throughout the day. The fuel that we should be burning for all of our activities should be the fuel that we have stored and we only really eat to replenish that stored fuel. And when we don't do that, when we don't function that way is where we run into problems with the inflammation, insulin resistance. And by the way, it accelerates aging. Really? Yes. So it's the loss of the ability to access stored fuel, fat, and to burn it in a healthy way, the way we are designed to do, that really is driving 
accelerated aging. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, so we're about out of time. Do you have any closing thoughts or anything you want to share? Yeah, always. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think this is a good groundwork or, you know, foundation to build on hitting other topics, whether it's cardiovascular disease or other other topics that I think are worth digging deeper into in the future. But I, I would just say that all of us have more capacity than we might think. We have greater potential. And I encourage people to ask questions, be curious, and experiment, um, and work in this direction. Our tendency is to beat ourselves up for not being perfect at this stuff. I say we, you know, we just need to practice to implement small steps and work in this direction of some form of regular fasting. And um, there's hope for everybody. And our work is to get people off these medications and make them live longer and feel better. Absolutely. I like what you said, though, about not being harsh with ourselves or being mean to ourselves. I feel like it's hard to, I think, hear it. And then immediately you want to try, okay, I'm going to go five days. But I think just giving yourself grace and being patient with yep. yourself and just keep trying, keep trying Absolutely. and sticking to it and being consistent. I think it's so important. Absolutely agree. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. See you next time.